grace. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jamie. Am I on? Can you hear me? Yeah, great. Okay, so this morning we are looking at uh, John 2. So we're continuing our series through John. I think Steve kicked it off last week with the, with the first, uh, chapter 1. Um, and we're looking at a very famous passage this morning. So we're going to look at Christ and the Cabernet. We're going to look at changing the water into wine, one of the, the, the most famous miracles of, uh, of Jesus. So if you want to follow in your Bible um, or just listen to the words, I'll read the first 11 verses from uh, John 2. On the third day, or some translations say the next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of, Ca- of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come, Jesus replied. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now take some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it, was, it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he then called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he bring, brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Okay, so um, that opens with the words, on the third day. Just to point out, that wasn't the third day of the week. That was the third day after Jesus had been baptized. So if you look in John chapter 1, you'll see John is very orderly. He likes process. So you'll see the narrative will say, the next day, the next day. This happened, this happened. And then on the third day, we come to Cana. Um, and like number seven, you know, you, number seven is, is completion. It means perfection. It's used a lot in scripture. Number three has significance as well. So it, it often signifies the new birth or transition from old to new. So think about some of those occasions. In the Old Testament, you've got Abraham who sees the place where the Lord provides on the third day. You've got the third day when God meets his people in Sinai. The third day when Jonah's life is brought back from the depths, from the belly of the whale. You've got the third day that plants were were created, that God created plants on the third day that brought forth the grapes that made the wine for this miracle. And lastly, you've got the third day where we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important third day. So this is the first of the seven miraculous signs we see in John that basically prove Jesus's divine status. And as you know, miracles are different types. We've got exorcisms, we've got healings. This is one of those types of being control over nature. And Jesus did a number of these these miracles. 
Most scholars believe that the area uh, that Cana was located in was Kirbet Karna, which is just over eight miles uh, from Nazareth. There is a bit of dispute over the exact location, but it was in that area. It doesn't really matter for the purpose of what we're looking at this morning, but we know it was in Galilee, so it was in the locality of Nazareth. It wasn't too far away. And this morning, I just want to, to really look at three elements of this story that hopefully we can apply to our lives today. Because I don't know about you, if Scripture is just something you read, a good old story, and it's just head knowledge, it does have no impact on our lives today. Would you agree that we need application in our lives? We need to apply the Scripture through revelation from God. So this morning, we're firstly going to look at need. Verse 3 They were at a point of need. Mary, Jesus' mother, said, we have no more wine. Need in the the dictionary is defined, and listen to this carefully, it's defined as requiring something or someone because it is essential, very important, rather than just desirable. So if you want to sort out your wants from your needs, apply that principle to it. Because it's something that's not essential or very important, then it's a want, basically. So a need is, is that serious. Now, you could say, well, is this really a need or is it a want? Well, <laughs> let's, let's look, because, because it's quite likely that Mary's concern is born out of the fact that it's one of her relations who's getting married. There's even speculation it was one of Jesus' brothers or sisters, possibly James. So that would explain why Mary and her relatives would be very embarrassed at running out of wine. It was looked on as inhospitable if that happened, and it would also give Mary a reason to help in this situation. The careful planning that so often goes into these, these weddings in the first century in the Middle East has sort of dissipated, and to run out of the wine would have been a social blunder um, that would have been a source of embarrassment to the family for years. We don't grasp the sort of situation they were in. This would be a stigma that, that the family would carry that they ran out of wine at this important wedding. Now, also, look at, look at something else here. Mary probably wasn't asking Jesus to perform a miracle at this time. She was asking him for guidance, for help. Remember, Joseph is most probably dead at this point, has been dead for some, some time. Mary would be used to asking Jesus for help, practical as well as for wisdom, over uh, certain situations, certain um, things she found herself in and she was probably looking for some practical get some wine Jesus you must know somebody who can who can uh, help us in this in this case so the way Jesus responds to his mother it doesn't say it in every translation but he calls a woman and you think that's a bit of a That's a little bit of a strange thing to say. Well, it was a term that was used in that day, but it wasn't normally used to address your own mother. 
it was used in much the same way as we use mom today. So if you met the queen or you referred to the queen, you might refer to as mom in her presence. That is the same sort of phraseology that's used here. So Jesus somehow was trying to keep a, a bit of a distance between himself and, uh, and his mother at this, at this, at this point. Um, now we know that, that many uh, times the whole town would attend these weddings and it was considered an insult to refuse an invitation. So unless you were seriously sick, you would not work uh, for that period and you would come to the wedding. There were also week-long celebrations, so they, they had um, festivities going on for days, not like um, our modern-day weddings. Need, though, I want to suggest to you this morning, the need that was present was um, the main catalyst or the first catalyst to this miracle actually happening. And sometimes need is a good thing for us to have in our lives, yeah? Do you agree? There's five basic needs that we, that we should have in life. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, we need sleep, and we need <laughs> broadband. <laughs> And we need others. No man is an island. We need other people at certain points in our life, even if you think you're a solitary person. So there's five basic needs. But if a man says, I have no need of anything, I am completely self-sufficient, that's a very dangerous place for somebody to be in. And self-sufficiency is fine up to a point. But to then say, I have no need of, of anyone or anything is, is a... a is a foolish thing to say. God, remember, in, the, in, the, in Genesis, said it's not good for man to be alone. He created a companion because he saw that humans needed intimacy. They needed that relationship. And, uh, and, and that was something that God created. James says, and one of the best verses in the Bible, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Substitute the word lack with need there. It's the same thing. It's got the same implication. If you need wisdom, all you have to do is ask of God, and he will give it to you. And suggest to you, wisdom is something we really need. To make our choices, to make great choices in life, we need the wisdom that only God can provide. Need keeps us humble, and it keeps us hungry as well. So the second point I just want to draw out from the passage is, is that of obedience. So in verse 5, and, and verse 4 actually to some, to some degree, we, we learn about obedience being the, the second catalyst into what happened in this miracle. So I want to, to concentrate first on Jesus' obedience, which we often overlook. Um, and then move on to the servants. But Jesus' response to his, his mother, ju just listen to what he says. He actually says, that's not our problem. My time hasn't yet come. He's basically knocking back the um, request for help to his mother. Uh, Jesus, remember, was always led by the Spirit. That's how he lived his, his life. He did whatever the Father showed him. 
And when his mother asked him to solve the beverage problem, by physical or spiritual means, it wasn't what he considered a life-threatening situation. Remember, Jesus had very recently resisted the devil for 40 days when the devil had been trying to squeeze out the miraculous from him. He'd been trying to manipulate him into performing miracles, and Jesus rebuffed him. He's now back on his home territory, and his mother is... We're not comparing to the devil, but she is trying to coerce him into solving this problem by whatever means. And Jesus rebuffs it. Why does he do that to start with? Well, maybe Jesus thought his opening miracle to prove who he was to his disciples should have been a healing. It should have been a raising from the dead. It should have been something that would have a serious impact on his life, maybe a life saving situation. That might have been his thought, and this was a little bit trivial for him to get involved with. But, got, um, but uh, I've lost my place, sorry. My point here then is that some time between telling his mother, I ain't going to help here, mother, to asking the servants to fill the water jars, that might have been a few seconds It might have been a few minutes, probably wasn't a lot of minutes, but may I suggest to you that in that period, Jesus had a revelation from God. He was controlled by the Spirit, and he said, he changed his mind. He said, no, I need to perform this miracle. From saying, no, mum, not getting involved, to saying, go and fill those water jars. God will sometimes speak to you in a situation where you will alter your course of action in seconds. Yeah? You don't need to process it. You don't need to pray about it for three weeks. You need to take action because you're being led by the Spirit as Jesus was being led by the Spirit. And if Jesus was open to changing his agenda, how much more should we be, yeah? It might be stopping and praying for someone in the street because the Holy Spirit directs you. If you are walking in tune with the Spirit, that will happen to you on a regular basis. A prime example is in Hope Week next year when we're doing the street evangelism. That is a time when if we're open to God, He will direct us in a matter of seconds or minutes to certain people. So secondly under this obedience point. I just want to point out the next next bit of obedience we see was on the behalf of the servants. Key point in this passage is do whatever he tells you. And if you don't remember anything from this morning, remember Jesus, um, uh, Mary said, do whatever he tells you. So put yourself in the position of the servants. This guy has said to you, go and fill up those water jars and these big ceremonial jars. It's a bit of an effort. And do you think they just went away blindly and did it? They did obey him. We know that. But do you not think there was a bit of sort of laughing and nudging each other and saying, what on earth are we doing? This guy's asked us to do this. But nevertheless, they did it. And obedience is at the heart of this miracle. The six stone water jars held roughly 20 to 30 gallons each. 
So they were big, big jars. They were used for ritual um, purposes, would have been enough to fill a Jewish immersion pool. So there's a lot of liquid in there. And imagine their faces when they drew out what they thought would just be water again when they drew it out and it was wine. And this was obviously physical obedience. Jesus was spiritual obedience, that he was following the Father's wishes. This is physical obedience. Now, how available are you to Jesus these days? In our 21st century world, we have a sort of attitude where we don't like being told what to do. And that, unfortunately, can permeate our relationship with God. I think you'd agree, wouldn't you? We have a lot of influencers in the world now. Social media, LinkedIn, talks about influencers a lot. Well, that has a, a, can have a negative effect on what, when we receive orders, whether that's from a boss, whether it's from, from God, when we're asked to do things, because we're being influenced by the world, the decision is with you, basically. You make all your decisions and you can use influencers, but ultimately it rests with you. But here we see obedience. And whether that's in the small things or the big things, I challenge you to be obedient to the voice of God. Whether it's in the small things, whether it's in befriending somebody who is alone, who is isolated, maybe a neighbor, maybe a, a distant relative, maybe somebody in church, or whether it is in the big things, whether it's relocation. You know, Jim and Nicola, who used to belong to this church, have gone out to Africa because they've obeyed the voice of God, and that was the way he directed them. So we need to, to do that in our lives. Every decision, bring it under the obedience of God. You might just have a change in water into wine moment if you obey God. Amen. And lastly, I just want to bring this together with, with um, the two, two elements we've looked at, the, the need and the obedience. Bring these together in quality and abundance in this, in this uh, miracle. So we see a fantastic quality in what Jesus does, that he brings forth the best wine. We also see an abundance as well. Jesus turned water into wine to prove that the old covenant lacked the resources to meet Israel's spiritual needs. He was the source of life and he offered a symbol of the new spiritual life that he would bring in conversion in following Jesus Christ. Wine is alive. The fermentation process is a metabolic process because yeasts are living organisms. So there's a life inside wine. Water, ironically, is necessary for life. Wine isn't, but wine is a, there's an element of life in wine. You may have been in church all your life. I don't know your church background. You may have been brought up in nominal Christianity. You may feel that going to church every week or as often as you can somehow makes you a Christian. Um, you may think if you do the right thing, say the right thing, treat other people well, then that makes you a Christian. But I'm here to tell you that the Jesus blew that out of the water in this, in this miracle. 
the new wine and the new covenant has arrived and Jesus is all you need. Jesus makes the very best wine available to all who attended the wedding. And that's a picture of those who will attend the wedding feast of the Lamb when we're told we will drink of the new wine in the kingdom of God. This is a, a, this is a, a foretaste of, of what um, will happen uh, with those of us that follow him. And think about the generosity here of Jesus' provision. When you convert it into modern day measures, that would equate to nearly 900 bottles of wine. So somewhere between 750 and 900 bottles of wine. So there was an abundant element to what Jesus did. Now before you all think Jesus gives us a great excuse to go out and get plastered, <laughs> we've got to put it into context. Here was a wedding not where we go. We had a wedding yesterday, didn't we? And we've had uh, Jam and Emily earlier on this year. Not where we have 100 or 150 people, if you're lucky, come to an afternoon reception and then an evening celebration. This was a week-long um, week uh, ceremony uh, or festivities that we've already mentioned. One or two banquets a day, several hundred people. So it doesn't equate to a lot of wine per head. So don't think that they were all walking around with six bottles each. That was not the case. So drunkenness is not the way Christians should live. We're told that in the Bible, along with gossip, along with slander, along with other, other areas in our life. If you choose to abstain from alcohol for personal reasons, that is absolutely fine and that is biblical. If you choose to take out, uh, alcohol in moderation, that is biblical too. The two, uh, the, the two um, viewpoints have to, have to live together and respect each other's views. That's just one of the secondary issues um, that we find in Scripture. So I just want to pull all this together as we close. Um, just thinking about it, do you think any of these guests followed Jesus after this miracle? Did anybody turn to Jesus? Did the servants give up everything for him because they'd been instrumental in what happened? We don't know. They may have done, but that's not the point of the miracle. He changed the water into wine to reveal the real nature to his disciples, to reveal his deity, to reveal his sonship. The ultimate purpose was to draw people to him by proving to the disciples, by giving them that assurance that he was the son of God. They'd done the right thing by following him and to announce Jesus' ministry is now beginning. And I wonder this morning, where are you? Are you needy enough? Is the need in your life? We sing that song, don't we? God in my waking, God in my sleeping, God in all these elements. That's sung by somebody who has a need of God in every single part of their life. And I want to challenge you if, you, if you don't have a need of God in every area of your life, then maybe you need to, to start getting needy. You need 
to engage God into that area. Is it an obedience issue for you? Are you going to do whatever he tells you? To obey is better than sacrifice, as one of the old gospel singers, Keith Green, used to say. I don't need your money. I want your life. Obedience is key. If you want to experience the quality and the abundance of a spirit-filled life, get needy and get obedient. Mother Teresa, I was reading, she had some great quotes, didn't she? I was reading one the other day that I've not read before. And it's this, yesterday is gone, tomorrow has not yet come. We have only today. Jesus at the wedding showed that yesterday was gone. He showed the old covenant had gone. The ceremonial jars had gone. And his tomorrow, the cross and the resurrection, had not yet come. So he performed the miracle in the today, between the, between the two. And though your physical yesterday is gone, maybe some of you are hanging on to your spiritual yesterday with its mistakes, its disappointments. But none of us know our tomorrows. Jesus did know his tomorrow. But none of us know our tomorrows. And that was brought back to me last week. I was out with a friend and I was at his church recently. And he said, you know, um, do you see that lady who was sat next to me at church? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, uh, she was about 60. He said, the next day she died of a brain hemorrhage. No, she wasn't ill. There was no signs that that was going to happen. That was completely out of the blue. Your tomorrows might be one. They might be 10,000. But none of us know that. So today, God says today's the day of salvation. If there's anybody here, I can't, we can't look at this miracle without bringing some element of the gospel in, into it. If you have never trusted God, you know, today is the day you can make up your mind. You don't know what's going to happen this week. You don't know how many tomorrows you have. But Jesus says he died for you. And if you will accept that in faith and you will follow him, then you become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it will be the best decision you'll ever make. It will be an abundant decision and a quality decision. I'm not saying it will be an easy decision, because following Jesus isn't easy all the time, but it will be the best decision you ever make. If we can just have the band up, and I'll just pray as we come, uh, as we come to sing. Lord, we want to thank you that you are the author of life. Lord, that you are the new covenant. Lord, we want to thank you that everything that we need in our lives can be found in you. Not only our basic needs, and we thank you for those. We thank you for food. We thank you for water. We thank you for shelter. But Lord, every need you give us, whatever that is in our life. And Lord, I pray for those this morning that maybe are in a place where they know they shouldn't be, Lord. 
where they've lost their need of you. Lord, you would touch them again. As we think about your suffering, as we think about your body broken for us, Lord, that they would realize once again that they've lost the joy of the first love and that you would draw them close to you again. Pray for us all now in all our situations, in, with all our needs. Lord, I pray that you would meet us at that point. Amen. Amen.